Hello, this is Terrence McNally. As we begin a new year with hopes of better news this time around, here's my 2020 conversation with Mary O'Hara about her book, The Shame Game, Overturning the Toxic Poverty Narrative. O'Hara, who grew up dirt poor in Belfast, Northern Ireland during the Troubles, is fighting to break the power of the narrative that excuses the cruel and unjust treatment of our most vulnerable. She shares her own inspiring story and those of others breaking its spell in their own lives. You can learn more at shamegamethebook.com. That's shamegamethebook, all one word, dot com. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to another episode of Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. I'm going to be speaking today with Mary O'Hara. She's an award-winning journalist, and we're going to talk about her new book, The Shame Game, Overturning the Toxic Poverty Narrative. And you can learn more about Mary and her work at Mary O'Hara, M-A-R-Y-O-H-A-R-A, simple, Mary O'Hara, one word, dot E-U. Okay, not, not one we're used to, but dot E-U. And then Shame Game, the book, all one word, shamegamethebook.com. After a three-year hiatus, uh, since Trump's electoral college victory, I've been doing a new interview every other week. Paul Hawken on climate change, Naomi Klein on her book, No Is Not Enough, Arlie Hochschild on her book, Strangers in Their Own Land and the Stories That Divide Us, Robert Wright on why he's a Buddhist and how that kind of thing might help us get through all of this. The show airs on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn. Podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. And this is the point where I usually plug participation. Some of the organizations that I recommend, Indivisible.org, MoveOn.org, CourageCampaign.org in California. Five Calls, that's five, C-A-L-L-S, FiveCalls.org townhallproject.com, and 350.org. But this being an election year, I've been encouraging you to get involved, not only with campaigns, but also with the efforts to fight voter suppression and assure that all Americans have their right to vote and can exercise it as if the future depends on it, which, of course, it certainly does. Now, as we confront the coronavirus pandemic, I encourage you also to do your part in defying the pandemic by social distancing and then in looking for ways to help those in your community who might be hurt even more than you by the social isolation and the economic devastation that we see now unfolding. Now to today's conversation. In less than the last six months, I've featured interviews with Emmanuel Saez, Branko Milanovic, Robert Reich, filmmaker Michael Apted, Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wu Dunn, if basically a series on inequality and its causes and consequences. And today, well, it'll be the next installment. Mary O'Hara has written two books, Austerity Bites on the Devastating Effects of Policies in the UK Following the Crash of 2008, on people, especially the poor, and her new book, The Shame Game, which attacks the narrative about poverty in the poor that is used to justify these policies and similar ones in the US. So let me go back a bit. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of an hour-long conversation with Christoph and Wu Dunn on their book, Tightrope. In it, they tell deeply personal stories, not just personal in the sense that they're about real people, but personal also to Nick and Cheryl. About one quarter of the children on Christoph's old school bus in rural Oregon when he was growing up have died in adulthood from drugs, alcohol, suicide, or reckless accidents what they call deaths of despair. And then Christoph and Moudon supply context. Where have we gotten to? How did we get here? And they talk policy, what policies produced our gross inequality, our tribal divisions, what policies might help us heal. And finally, and this is the part that really grabbed me, they deal with the power of narrative and the need for a new American story to replace the up by your bootstraps, you're on your own narrative, with one that recognizes that the people of our nation need each other. Well, a few days after that interview in early March, as I drove around on one of my last supply runs in preparation for our societal staying at home, I heard an interview on NPR's Marketplace, you know, one of those seven or eight minute interviews with Mary O'Hara. The Shame Game, her book, focuses specifically on that last aspect that I cited in Tightrope, 
the power of narrative to rationalize and excuse otherwise cruel and unjust treatment of our most vulnerable neighbors. O'Hara's thesis is also rooted in personal stories. First of all, her own. She grew up in deep poverty in Belfast, Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And over the next hour, we're going to talk about her own story and the stories of others who have begun to move past that narrative in their own lives, often through the power of reading and writing the same pathways that O'Hara herself took. What is the power of the narrative that your poverty is your own fault? What does it cost us? And how can we reveal and replace it? In addition to being an award-winning journalist, primarily for The Guardian of London and chosen International Columnist of the Year for 2017 and 2018 by the Southern California Journalism Awards and author, Mary O'Hara is also the founder of Project Twisted, challenging the negative narrative surrounding poverty in the UK and the US, and co-produces Getting Curious, a weekly podcast with Jonathan Van Ness. Welcome, Mary O'Hara, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Thanks for having me, Taryn. It's a pleasure. And let me tell this, as we're recording this conversation, Friday, March 27th. Now, I usually open my interviews, Mary, by asking my guests to share a bit about their personal path. I encourage them to go way back, if they wish, and talk about mentors and turning points and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Some take me up on it more than others. But with you, Mary, I really want you to tell us about your childhood, because it's at the heart of the book, The Shame Game. But first... Because your personal story is so tied to the shame game, can you tell us a bit about your earlier book, Austerity Bites? I get the sense that that book laid out the evidence of austerity and poverty and their connections, and that the new book takes on the narrative that makes all of that possible. So let's start with Austerity Bites. Yeah, sure. No problem. Um, Basically, in Britain, immediately after the financial crash of 2008-2009, the reaction by the then British Labour government was to, you know, make sure that some foundations were put back in place to reduce the level of destabilisation that had happened. That government was out of elected, um, out of power in 2010. That brought in a coalition government of Conservatives and Liberal Democrats who decided that the way forward after the crash was a really quite brutal uh, austerity package, basically to shred the social safety net of the UK, something that had been built up since the Second World War that even Margaret Thatcher hadn't totally um, been able to demolish. Now, austerity was introduced in different parts of Europe as well. It was deemed to be a solution for supposedly reckless spending by governments. That meant that... Everything from social care, from care for the, for disabled people to social security and benefits were being slashed. Now, the saying at the time was, we're all in this together. The idea being that we need to, you know, reduce the national debt. We need to cut government spending. But what happened was we weren't all in this together. It was done on the back of the poorest in society and the most vulnerable in society, people who needed public services. In 2012, I was asked to travel around the UK to the front lines of austerity, look at what was coming down the line, talk to people in their communities, in their schools, in the food banks that were beginning to emerge about how this was impacting on their lives um, day in, day out. What I found very quickly was that even at the start of it, even before the cuts were fully implemented, people's lives were changing beyond recognition. Something called the bedroom tax was brought in where you had to pay an extra tax if you had an extra bedroom that wasn't deemed to be, in inverted commas, in use. I mean, really cruel and unnecessary policies. Everyone I spoke to, like literally everyone, was saying this is just the beginning. This is only going to get worse. Now, in parallel with that, something really incredible was happening if you listened to the rhetoric Um, of government ministers and of the prime minister and chancellor of the exchequer at the time. They were framing everything very specifically so that it justified what they were doing. Phrases like, we all have to tighten our belts, you know, things like that came through over and over and over again. The idea being that if they repeated this like a mantra, that people would absorb it 
And they were absolutely right. I mean, often in interviews, people would repeat back to me word for word what a government minister had said to justify these cuts. Um, They blamed the previous government, even though that was a fallacy. They said that austerity was necessary, which was a lie. It was a political choice. And people bought into it hook, line and sinker. Now, what that meant was that it gave them permission, it gave them carte blanche to keep cutting. And rather than it be seen for the ideological move that it was, it was interpreted as the only thing that could be done. Now, actually, the only thing that was happening was people's lives were being made worse, but it wasn't the well-off. It wasn't even the middle classes who were carrying the can. It was the very poorest and the people with no real power to do anything about it. It became really clear to me that none of this would have been possible if they hadn't crafted such a perfect narrative for their um, policies to be pushed through. Obviously, those policy, those that rhetoric, that story that they were telling had to find a place to be told. And it was told in the media. It was disseminated widely. Um, in many ways, journalists didn't do their jobs by unpicking that narrative as it was being constructed. And we were left with the damage that we were left with, um, which was absolutely appalling for so many people. Okay, let me let me jump in with a couple of things here. One, when you said it was uh, put out there as the only thing, I couldn't help but thinking about Margaret Thatcher's Tina. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The Thatcher era, which, for those who recall, uh, paralleled the Reagan era here in the U.S., she has famously said there is no alternative. And she was speaking then of the free market. Of, yep. which, of course, we know is not a free market. It's socialism for the, <laughs> for the rich, for yeah, the rich yeah. and the corporations. But that, that, that fundamentalism of, of, of the market ruling, uh, as she put it then, there is no alternative. And we've sort of been, I mean, UK, but that belief, without, without her having to say it, that belief uh, started here, of course, uh, with Friedman uh, yeah. in, in, in the, uh, quite long uh, before, before Thatcher. And has yep. been just accepted as 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 reality here as well, and and we're now dealing with the results of all of that. The other thing, uh, when you said that the media helped propagate this narrative, uh, I immediately thought, well, the media journalists love a narrative, yeah, and so if they're given one and they don't have another one, they're likely to run with it. Yeah, and that's absolutely what happened under austerity. I mean, I wrote um, in Austerity Bites in the book that, you know, it would be easy to just say, oh, this is all the fault of that government at the time. But actually, it was a failure of the opposition at the same time because the the Labour Party, which had been ousted from power after 13 years, um, didn't do its job at the time. They should have been straight out of the gate saying this is absolute nonsense. But they were reeling from their loss. They were sort of licking their wounds. Um, a few people in the party were trying to get the message out, but they didn't have a platform to do it. But on the whole, it's a failure of opposition to not immediately counter that narrative and call it out for the lie that it was, you know, um, and that meant it got worse. Uh, and one thing I hope we get a chance to uh, in the later portion of this uh, conversation is talk about not just this narrative of poverty, but a question that's been haunting me since 2016 is, and, and how long have you lived in the U.S. now? Um, this time, just under six years. Okay, okay. The, the narrative that elected, um, that, that paved the way for or elected Donald Trump uh, that that has people yearning for the past more than the future. And one of my big thoughts ever since then is what's the new narrative that yeah. uh, that can pull people forward to yearn for the future more than the past, to, to, to believe in possibility rather than retrenchment and so on. And hopefully we get a chance to, to take that one on as well. Um, let me ask you this, because this narrative that poverty is the pro- is the fault of the poor mm-hmm. uh, at least, I mean, I think it goes back in the U.S. much longer than that. We have that, uh, that um, although we're a country 
that uh, as as Nick Kristoff points out, uh, the Oregon Trail, uh, we're going way back to that point, those hardy folks that we think were the pioneers who, who kind of, you know, that, that rugged individual that America so yeah. loves and, and admires, they were coming out here because the government had offered them, if you make it to Oregon, you get 160 acres free. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was basically a government program that lured them into what has become a myth of the rugged individual. Yeah. I just use yeah. that as one example. Yeah, and that's, I mean, and you find examples of that throughout the culture, throughout the history. Um, they're, they're different, um, because of the, each country's evolution is different, obviously, for the, U, for the UK and for America. But ostensibly, those mythologies are very, very deep. And, you know, as Nick would have pointed out, they're not necessarily founded in reality, but that's the nature of myths. I mean, sometimes they've got a kernel of truth, but they're extrapolated into something that services a goal. And in this instance, it services the goal of, you know, the American dream is, is so deeply ingrained in the public consciousness, this idea of the rugged individual, of the explorer, of the standing on your own two feet and making your own way in the world, an American dynamism, an American exceptionalism. Um, and the UK has its deeply ingrained sort of class system and you get a lot of mythology for instance in the uk going way back to you know the deserving poor versus the undeserving poor you know those people who despite all of these challenges they still made it you know margaret thatcher loved to talk about that you know this idea of there being no such thing as society as you know the individual is is the thing that makes the difference in our world. Um, all of those are deeply held myths and they feed through to so many aspects of life that it's almost, um, it's almost seen as inevitable. It's almost seen as core to who we are. Yeah. And I, I think that for me, if I look back at, at our history, it seems to me the new deal under yeah. Roosevelt was, was uh, took on that myth and, 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 and suggested that we were in this together. There were uh, elements of this in the 60s as well, uh, which I will often say um, more than anything were crushed by the assassinations yeah. uh, that took the leaders who were carrying that myth for us uh, from us. Um, the UK, though, came out of World War II, as did most of Europe with the social democratic uh, sort of approach. And so... Um, although you've talked about that there's, you know, that this myth also has long standing in the UK, it seems to me that, that they went in a direction we didn't quite accept during the New Deal. And so it, it then had to sort of revive and, and, and remuscle that narrative, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think there are, there are flavors that are similar. So, uh, Johnson's, uh, Great Society, things like that in the 60s, obviously, were pushing for, aspects of what Europe had actually, which was a secure social safety net and understanding that if you fall, if life, you know, throws you some pretty bad cards and you fall, that you will have something to catch you and help you get back on your feet. The, the narrative around that is we are all interconnected with each other. And if we help each other, all of us will do better. All of us will do better. You know, there's that famous Eleanor Roosevelt quote about, um, you know, either, you know, either we go down together or we rise together. And I mean, and that's absolutely right. And that percolated through the post-war settlements across Europe. Um, that devastation prompted a huge backlash against what came before, namely that your value was entirely based on your economic status and people were denied basic access to healthcare, for instance. That became a huge thing in Britain because the National Health Service was founded after the Second World War on the basis that when you turn up for medical assistance, it's there for you. It, you are never asked for to hand over money for it. It's, you know, at the point of need, you will get what you want. Now, those were very strong philosophies. And there was a, a relative consensus across the political spectrum on those things, actually, until we reached the 1980s. It was beginning to come through in the 70s, much in the way that it was in America. Um, and you mentioned Friedman earlier, you know, that 
that dawn of an alternative individualistic driven narrative. And the UK and the US end up being slightly different from their European counterparts because the Conservatives in Britain and the Reagan administration in the US, well, they, you know, they bought this, they sold this. And you can definitely say of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher that they were sublime salespeople. Um, they knew how to flog a good story, and they did. Yeah, yeah. And let's, let's shift. We've set the ground here. Let's shift to the shame game. Once you finished Austerity Bites, what led you from that to the shame game? Well, there was a chapter in Austerity Bites that I devoted to the rhetoric because it was, it was clear to me that it had such an enormous impact on what was happening and yet it wasn't being talked about. But I felt like that had only just scratched the surface um, and the deeper the country got into these cuts, the more, I, the more profound it seemed to me that this narrative was, you know, the girders of the austerity building, if you like. So I wanted to dig a bit deeper on it. I wanted to find out a bit more about why it was so effective. You know, why were people just buying it? Why wasn't there a pushback against it? And it seemed pretty clear to me that the austerity narrative was basically a sort of bastard child of a bigger poverty narrative that had had different incarnations over the years, but it more or less had a stranglehold um, in Britain for the previous 30 to 40 years. And then looking across the Atlantic to America, the same thing had happened. Exactly the same thing had happened in terms of um, the emergence of a very profound story that they were hanging policies off. So in the US, you had, you know, the myth of the welfare queen, for instance, at the same time as that was happening in the US and sort of being propagated by the Reagan administration, there had been relentless attacks on single parents um, in Britain. Uh, women and girls were being sort of scapegoated for wider social problems. You know, it was just your fault if you, if you had a baby, um, then you're part of the problem kind of thing. So I thought there are, you know, there's, there's just such a profundity to the way this narrative is deployed. And yet it's so simple and we need to talk about it. I mean, it really was as simple as that. I thought we absolutely have to start talking about this because until we understand the stories we're being told and human beings love stories, um, we can't really attack the policies. And yeah, well, I think we, we not only love stories, we love stories blindly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, a good storyteller can take you almost anywhere, right? And um, for me, I, I, I just kept looking at it and thinking, why this story? Why, you know, why is this the one that we buy? Even though it, all we have to do is open our eyes and look around us to see the poverty, to see the homelessness. It's, it's there right in front of us. And yet, uh, these yeah, stories... Two, two don't... Quick, sorry, two quick Two quick notes. One, of course, as we've said, we've talked about Reagan and Thatcher. Uh, yeah. But uh, the first time that I watched Donald Trump debate Hillary Clinton, yeah. I turned to my wife and I said, we are in trouble. He is a narrative machine. Yeah. Um, that I would say his most, uh, he is a savant. Yeah. In just seeing simple narratives and 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 you know just riding them forever, uh, he basically repeated the same narrative over and over, again. over and over again, and it works. It really does work. And I was so I was looking at what was happening on the left, for instance. So what the left are very good at is talking to themselves um, and de <laughs> and and deconstructing policies. Very you know doing that really well, looking at numbers, pointing out injustices, shooting arrows, if you like. Um, but that's not the same as having your own story to tell. You know, that, that's not the same as using the material and the weapons that are being used by the other side. It's like, I don't know, it's like fighting a war with like plasticine. You yeah, know, it's, 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 it's asymmetric, man. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? You're just, so this is why I'm saying it's not, it, it's not even like, 
you know, I could have called this book the blame game, but all that does is feed into what is wrong about the um, building of alternative narratives to the one that we've got. I think often the left intellectualize everything and they sort of recoil from simple messages because the left's default is, but it's complex. Everything's complicated. Well, shit, we know that already. You know, we know, it, you know, we know everything's complicated, but you need to give us something to get us out of this mess, you know, and you need to take us in a direction that we can follow without having to spend our entire days deconstructing what it is you're telling us because no one has that time. Nobody right. has the time. We're, we're, we're data and and policy and 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 those sorts of things they they can add up as it were but they don't invite they, they don't i mean i'm a jur- i'm a journalist by profession right so i am used to writing stories where you know there's a headline that's shocking you know child poverty statistics homelessness the number of people incarcerated whatever it happens to be those statistics matter. They really matter because they give us the context. They give us an understanding of what's happening, but they don't help us change it. They're not enough. We, we know that people aren't frightened into changing their behavior by these statistics. So the question becomes, well, what can we do? What tools do we have at our disposal to make a difference, to win people to an argument? Um, and what we've been doing up until this point isn't working. I mean, I think if you look at, let's say you look at Tony Blair in Britain and Barack Obama um, as two, at the time, young, inspirational leaders, both of whom had a hopeful message, both of whom were like wonderful at being able to like express um, simple ideas around complex problems. And they brought people with them. It's not impossible. It can be done. But often when we're faced with really, really overwhelming difficulty, um, there's a retreat into the sort of analytical side of it. And then you've lost people. You've lost them. You're not taking them anywhere with you. Right. Let me just make the analogy of uh, pleading a case in court, which to some extent is what you are doing in this. Uh, The evidence is essential. Mm. But the decisions, they've done the research, the decisions that the juries make are based on the stories that the prosecutor and the defense construct and the stories that the jurors themselves make up. And they basically uh, decide between those two stories. The evidence Mm -hmm. is just part of it. Yeah. And this was this felt very important to me when I was um, beginning work on the shame game, because the shame game was born out of my wider project, Project Twist It, uh, where I decided to, to just look out into the world. And by the world, in this case, I mean Britain and America, because I, they're the countries I've worked in, they're the countries I've studied and written about, and they're the countries that are aligned in terms of their levels of inequality and all of that. But I thought, I thought there must be other things going on. There must be people who are trying not to just accept this story and to find other stories. And the minute I started looking, it was everywhere. It wasn't a coherent movement as such, but it was absolutely everywhere. And up until that point, I'd often been asked to write about my own story, to, you know, explain it not just professionally, not just journalistically, but why why did this mean something to me? And I thought at that point, well, you know, I have to tool up here. I have to you know, put my money where my mouth is um, and see how I can leverage my own story. And let me say that that's the next thing I want to get to. I just want to tell people we're at about the halfway point. This is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally speaking with Mary O'Hara, award-winning journalist, and we're talking about her new book, The Shame Game, Overturning the Toxic Poverty Narrative. And you can learn more at maryohara.eu, as in Europe, maryohara.eu and shamegame the book all one word.com this is terence mcnally you're listening to my 2020 conversation with mary o'hara about the troubling truths and inspiring stories in her book the shame game overturning the toxic poverty narrative you can learn more at shamegame the book all one word shamegamethebook.com so let's turn now to your story your poverty your love of books etc yeah, so um, I am one of those people that often 
the narrative that I'm trying to overturn is turned on me. So people would say things like, but look at you, you know, you're clear as day evidence of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps of, you know, clawing your way out of poverty um, to, to make it in the world professionally. Um, I, you know, I've had that a lot throughout my life. And then the only response I have to that is bullshit because I am not going to be used to justify um, not having social safety nets for people. Um, when I look at my own story, I know for a fact that in a million different ways, I almost fell and never got up again. But the things that helped me make my life what I wanted it to be was things like social security, was things like free healthcare, knowing that I could have access to that as and when I fell ill and you know my family nor I would fall into debt. I had free school meals, which meant that even when my parents didn't have much money, every single day, at least in the school term, I was guaranteed, my siblings were guaranteed a good, healthy, nutritious meal. I mean, it's as basic as that. When I was growing up, my father was in and out of employment. Um, we were basically in the middle of a civil war as well because the troubles um, were erupting in Northern Ireland. We lived in segregated communities. Um, people were paid week to week, much like people today live paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, you couldn't really plan ahead for your future unless you had some structures around you in the wider society that helped you do that. A good education system, something that, you know, teachers that encouraged you to to strive and helped you get there. Um, so I could uh, I, I grew up in a house with no central heating. We had no bathroom. The only toilet was an outside toilet. We had two tiny bedrooms for eight people, including my parents. The house next door was derelict. So there were rat infestations, the sort of things that you, you would expect. Um, but everyone around us was in the same boat. Everyone around us was having the same struggles. Had we not had the welfare state in the UK, then that squalor would have been my whole life. As it was when I was seven and a half, we were put into new public housing. Suddenly we had not just a bathroom, but a, an, an extra toilet, which seemed like the most amazing thing ever. We had outdoor space, a little garden. Um, you know, it wasn't huge, but it was, it was an enormous transformation for us. Um, and I just, I, you know, the idea that I would have I've been able to do all the things I wanted to do with my life growing up in a, in a damp, cold, tiny little house is ridiculous to me. It's ridiculous to me. And we know from the evidence that a child who is born into or grows up in poverty, um, their life chances are curtailed from the minute they're born, um, from literacy through to health uh, through to emotional well-being. All of these things are profoundly affected by poverty. The other thing that you feel when you're a child in poverty is shame. You feel ashamed. It's an extraordinary thing when I started looking back on my life to remind myself how much shame I felt, how much it almost stopped me. More than the lack of material things, how that shame almost stopped me from believing that I was entitled to a better life, that I was as good as anybody else. Um, I was fortunate because I had teachers who told me and everyone else in my schools that the world might try to tell us that we are other, that we are sub, that we are not as good as everyone else, but that we are and that we should be able to hold our heads up. We should be able to walk into any room and know that we are as good as anybody else. My experience is not on the level um, that you began at, but six kids, Irish Catholic family, no mm. vacations, you know, no bicycles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that sort of thing. And for me, it was the Catholic schools that I was able to go to and the Catholic yeah. schools who waived our tuition when we couldn't. I'm getting a little too emotional. Well, we couldn't afford to pay it. Yeah. And yeah. the the belief that they gave me, I will say one thing that was that I had a combination, I think, of the shame 
and the um, the uh, wise guy fighting yeah, I, back. You know oh, yeah, I they mean? come together. Those two things come hand in hand for sure. Okay, there you go. That was me. <laughs> yeah, I think those things do come hand in hand. You know, often um, I've been working with a lot of young people on Project Twisted and on the book. And one of the things that never changes, whatever your generation, is if you're in these circumstances, there's a bit of you that um, puts on some armor. You know, there's bravado. Like, you know, and I used to see this, especially with the boys around me, which was, you know, they would kick and scream against the world because everyone knew the profound injustice that we were living with. I mean, that's just the long and short of it. Um and some for everybody reacts differently, but you reacted differently at different times in your life as well. Because you know what? You should be bloody angry that the world is denying you the same opportunities as kids two miles down the road. You have every right to be angry. The question becomes, how do we harness it? What do we do with that anger? Um, and that's where wider movements come in. That's where trade unions comes in. You know, that's where human rights activism comes in because it really comes back to what is the worth of a human being and my god is that being put into sharp focus right now with the coronavirus crisis because fundamentally what is what is the value of a human being up until now we're being constantly told that our worth is monetary our worth is what we earn it's the possessions that we have um and that is so patently not the case you know, every human life should be treated with an equal sense of worth and justice. Um, and I think there's something about when you're an adolescent, that you just you just get that. You know, you just get that, like, what the hell? Why are you telling me that, you know, I'm not worth the same as anybody yeah. else? And in many, in many ways, that's why adolescents are at the forefront of the environmental movement, because this is a place where they can put all of their energy, all of their ideas and creativity and all of that anger. Um, and for me, I would like to see something similar when it comes to poverty. Now, the thing with poverty, of course, is your, limit, your opportunities are limited. You have less time to do a lot of the things that you would want to do to fight against this situation that you're in. And you certainly don't have a lot of time to fight the, this sort of, you know, esoteric narrative idea. But actually, it turns out that in a million small ways, that's, that's happening. And it happens through creativity. It happens through stories, through the arts, through self-expression and music. Um, and young people can bring so much to that. You know, they can absolutely push back against what we're being told where we are now i think is quite fundamental because when we come out of this coronavirus crisis there will be a reckoning the question is what kind of reckoning will it be and the millions of people that are suddenly signing up for unemployment benefit right now who probably never had to before are they suddenly going to say to themselves well shit it turns out it's not your fault (laughs) you know it turns out that other factors in the blink of an eye can alter your existence to the point where, you know, if you wrapped your identity and the culture wrapped your identity and value in the money that you earned or the job that you did, well, actually, that's just hollow. Let me say, by the way, that um, when Trump first got elected, I had this hope that the reaction would mean that we would come out of this uh, better than before. In other yeah. words, obviously the 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 the, the system, uh, the context from that paved the way for Trump was the mm. one we're describing, where where the 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 poor, the vulnerable, were were uh, you know were, were getting the shaft. Would we come out of it uh, as a better society, a more progressive society? Now add the pandemic to that. Yeah. When we come out of Trump and the pandemic, we have we will, as a society, choose one of two paths. There will yeah, be the disaster capitalists, the shock yeah. doctrine folks, who will be attempting to yeah. say, "Okay, now you know, let's 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 let the adults take over here and fix this." 
and there will be the people, the young people, and so on. As you, as you point out, when people who have never been in the same situation as the poor suddenly mm. find themselves there, that all their hard work, all their whatever they were doing to, to, to fit within the system didn't, didn't matter in the face yeah. of this pandemic. Um, will we be able to actually com- you know, make the changes to change the context so that the context of, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't pave the way for a Trump or uh, yeah. you know, this sort of a, a and well, we know that we would be more prepared for whatever comes our way. Well, we know, we know from, I mean, history teaches us that the massive convulsions economically, politically, societally, um, that we've experienced can have one or, you know, they can have either a sort of reactionary or authoritarian response, or they can have the sort of response that Britain had after the outcome of the Second World War, which was no more, you know, we have to, we have to sort this out. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that that can only happen. Um, that, that shifts from being a primal scream, a collective primal scream to a cogent way forward. If we have, if we have the, the stories and the philosophies and the narratives that help shift us in that direction. I think in the past we've been too reliant on being a purely political process, um, and on, you know, the, the rage and the pointing out the injustices and whatever all important, but without act, if we don't come out of this with some sort of clear leadership that stands in the way of the potential, like you say, disaster capitalism reaction, then I think that just strips us of all hope. You know, there has, there has to be something that says, you know, we, you know, as people, we deserve better. Each and every one of us deserves better than to be told that we have no say in how we go forward. And, and the experience of all of us being in isolation, of all of us sharing the, 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 the downside, can it make us realize we are in this together? We, we you know, those little gestures that, I'm, that I know yeah. people are making nowadays to help people on their street, yeah. to help the elderly, to help yeah. the vulnerable, to help the homeless. Yeah. Because of the threat that's in their face and because they can't spend all their time being busy at whatever it is they were doing <laughs> to get ahead. Yeah. And um, also, I, I think, I, I do think that, um, and again, these things take a bit of time for human beings to process, but there's a lot of this is emotional, is psychological, and the economics are what they are, um, but they're absolutely inseparable from our emotional and psychological response. And there will be a lot of people this week and today who are grappling with the fact that they feel ashamed of the fact that they've lost their job, they've lost their health insurance, um, they can't support their families. And the question becomes, does that become internalized or does it get pointed out at the world and people begin to say, okay, why am I feeling ashamed for something that wasn't my fault? And then hopefully the next step from that is why the hell would I lump this shame onto someone else? You know, and that's a process. And some of us hopefully will go through that process and be less tolerant of people blaming and shaming those in our society for whom life is more of a struggle because of circumstances that they find themselves in. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about um, Project Twisted and Mighty Writers. Right. Well, Project Twisted um, was formed out of my sort of hunch, if you like, that if I went digging around to find it, I would see work that was going on in this area because I didn't believe for a minute that there weren't people already out there challenging these notions of what it is to be poor, um, what it is to be from a marginalized or vulnerable group. And I, you know, I've been a journalist a long time. I've written on social policy for 15 years. So I'm, I'm pretty aware that there are lots of grassroots organizations that are always, you know, trying to help people in difficult circumstances. 
And lots of these are youth organizations. Um, so one of the organizations I came across was Mighty Riders because they were doing work often with very young kids in, you know, from low income backgrounds, um, kids growing up in, you know, difficult city streets, uh, often kids that were dealing with racism on a daily basis, you know, immigrant children um, confronting the, um, the awful reality under Trump, that they were being openly vilified on a daily basis. You know, kids absorb this stuff. I wanted to hear what they had to say. Um, and Mighty Writers is run by a former journalist, Tim Whitaker. So I find that interesting because he's a storyteller. And then he forms this organization where the kids come along and they, you know, they're encouraged to tell their stories, to, to understand the power of telling stories to other people. Um, the importance of their voice is really central. Um, and that was very much what the whole of Project Twisted was about, uh, was the voices of people who you never hear from. Because the thing that occurs to me is that the poor are often talked about or they're talked at. You don't hear from them. And as a journalist, when you do hear from them, I'm aware that it's in a case study. It's, oh, look at this person's tragic life. You know, oh my God, what a victim. And to me, that is demeaning and undermining. It strips people of their agency. Um, and yet you've got organizations like Mighty Writers where the kids are absorbing messages that they do have agency, that their voice does matter, that they can speak up. And, you know, when I went there and spoke with some of the kids, I mean, I was blown away you know I mean as an Irish person you know I was brought up to talk and tell stories and you know and and yabber I mean As that's, was I. Yes. right that's that's my culture um and you know it's an oral as well as a literary culture and I was sort of sit with these kids 11 12 years old and you know this they were just like they really understood what was happening around them on one level that was terrifying because 11 and 12 year olds shouldn't have to be considering things like, you know, going on, going on a protest for black lives matter. You know, there's a bit of you that wants to shield them from that reality, at least for a bit. Um, but on the other hand, they were clear eyed, articulate, um, telling me why these things matter to them. Um, and it was sort of planting a seed in them that their voices mattered and they should speak up. And then I found that in other places, in London, in the UK, um, I made a little film with an organization called um, BAC, Battersea Arts Centre Beatbox Academy, slightly older kids, teenagers, and they use beatboxing to tell their reality. And with those guys, we give them like a, a word provocation exercise around poverty and inequality and around the narrative. Um, and they came up with just the most extraordinary poetry, music, um, you know, stories about their experience of it. Uh, it, was, it was incredible and they responded immediately. And so I had lots of different sort of experiences like this in the UK and the US. That's the kind of grassroots level to it. Then you realize, well, there are lots of people obviously working at a more kind of academic and analytical level on narrative um, so like the narrative initiative that had just been launched, um, you know, Chuck Collins's work, uh, writing about, you know, um, Chuck writes about the I didn't do it alone stories. So harnessing the stories of wealthy people who will tell you that they didn't do it on their own, you know, so stop telling me that I'm this, you know, wealth creator, super individual, um, you know, I did it with the help of other people as well. And I think you, what you end up with is this constellation and it's cross-generational um, activities. Uh, the Poor People's Campaign, um, I spent time with some activists in Chicago who were working on the ground on that, interviewed Reverend Barber, um, interviewed other people, um, Liz Theo Harris, who have been pushing this idea of a narrative now for almost at the same time that I was building the project. I thought, you know, there's a real appetite for this. The question becomes, how do we... How Let do me we... just say a, a couple of things. One, uh, Chuck Collins has been a guest um, yeah. on, on this show 
two, three, four times. Look mm. into the podcast and, 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 and check out his work. His, the book of his that has the catchiest title is Born on Born Third, on third Base, Base. Yeah. In which yeah. he says, you know, yeah, don't give me the credit. I had a huge head start. Yeah. Um, but one, one thing I did want to touch in, in the middle of what you said was, was that you said when journalists deal with uh, people in poverty, um, the sympathetic journalists will go to the victim narrative. And yeah. what we need is if you've got a, if there on the one side is the it's your own fault narrative. Yeah. And on the other side is you're a victim narrative. It's threading the line between that. Yeah. It says a uh, it, it's it's the larger context and you do have agency and we need you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, we've, we've talked a bit about, you know, how you get these messages out, how you tell different stories, how you tell different narratives. Um, I'm very aware that um, certainly at a national level, the journalistic profession is a very middle, upper middle class profession. Um, I don't see a lot of people around from my background in that space. So when the economic hardship um, reporting initiative was founded, I thought, oh, this is wonderful because they are... A lot of the people telling the stories through those platforms, many of which appear in major news media, are people who are struggling, are people who have struggled. And that begins to elevate um, and surface the voices of people who can tell you, this is the shit we're dealing with. This is, what, this is the reality. And I think that's absolutely critical in the same way that you know, having the voices of people who are well off pushing back against the mythologizing of them um you have a pushback from people with lived experience of poverty um saying no hold on a minute this is this is the reality and what i have to say matters um and what i have to say provides an insight that you might not otherwise have so one of the groups of people that we spoke to for project twisted were army veterans for instance who you know had struggled, whose families had struggled with poverty um, and who were struggling with poverty after leaving the service. Uh, you know, all of these, what you begin to understand is that the people experiencing this aren't one dimensional. They aren't all the same. It's not a homogenous group any more than any other group is homogenous. This is, this is, this is a group of people with very different hopes and dreams, just like anybody else. And all we're asking for is a chance to be heard and a chance for an understanding that there's a better way to, to go forward that, and it shouldn't be about blaming each other or shaming each other. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to say when I was reading about the mighty writers uh, yeah. in, in inner city, Philadelphia, uh, I had the uh, privilege uh, to actually work with a couple of uh sisters, Sister Constance Tui and Sister Jeanette Lucy, uh, to write a book with them called Do It Better, right. how the kids of St. Francis de Sales exceeded everyone's expectations. St. Francis de Sales is a school in the inner city. It's a Catholic school. Basically, its population is poverty and immigrants. Yeah. And, and, and when those two sisters got there in the 80s, it was uh, Vietnam, boat people, Right. Uh, it's now a lot of folks from Africa and so on. And, mm. and what that book is, is those two sisters telling what worked in that school to bring out the potential. I, I, I mean, we were we were uh, we were dealing with basically uh, you and I in the same neighborhood there at one point. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and if and if anyone want, you know, if you want to look into this book, do it better. Uh, go to my website. I don't even have it on my website. I don't think go to my website. Email me, te mcnally at, at mac.com, and, and I will tell you how you can learn because it, it is a wonderful, inspiring story of exactly the same thing that you've been working on. Oh, well, I've got another one to recommend then <laughs> because um, that's actually quite personal to me. Um, so, my, you know, I was brought up in an Irish Catholic community, our society was segregated by religion. So mm -hmm. you had no choice but to go to the Catholic school. Um, but I was in a really unusual position in that the um, secondary school I went to, which is basically the combination of elementary and high school age um, in the US, we go to the same school for seven years, not, you know, and um, 
it was at that time uh, one of the poorest districts in the whole of Western Europe. You know, huge unemployment. There was an expectation that the girls who went to my school, that the most that we were supposed to achieve in life um, was get married, have kids, or, you know, maybe you could work in a shop or be a machinist in a factory, or, you know, really kind of narrow ambitions. Um, fine for some people, not fine for everyone. So I end up going to a school that is being run at this point by a feminist nun who really takes no crap from anybody, no matter what level they're in in society. And we go into that school and every single day we're told that we can be whatever it is that we want to be and that the school will help make that happen. Whether you want to be an actor, a radiologist, you know, whether you want to be a farmer, it really doesn't matter what you want to be. We're here to help you get to that place. We're here to tell you that you're no different or uh, no better or worse than anybody else. And one of the things that um, Sister Genevieve did, um, and there's a book by John Ray um, called Sister Genevieve, is mimic some of the social um, capital aspects that the very wealthy public schools in England um, did. So she had this thing where we were all taught to do public speaking so that when we stood up in a room and were asked to say something, we'd be able to do it, that we wouldn't be the person hiding in the corner, afraid to use our voice. And from the age of 11, that's what we were being taught. And it's a remarkable thing to be told as an 11-year-old um, that, that this is who you are. You yeah, know, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that the sisters did so well at Francis de Salle was they entered these newly, uh, these newly arrived immigrant kids in uh, essay contests, in art contests. And yeah. it turned out that they won them on the, in the city of Philadelphia. They won them in the yeah. city of Pennsylvania. They won them in national contests. Yeah. And the, the, the message of that is just so powerful. Sounds similar to what you were doing in public. Yeah, we had that we've too. Gotta, we've got to bring is... this to a close. I can go on. Yeah. But, um, but that's a book definitely worth, worth. Sister, Sister Genevieve. Yeah. It's a grassroots response to yeah. a structural problem. So again, the book we've been talking about is a shame game, overturning the toxic poverty narrative. The websites are maryohara.eu, Mary O'Hara, one word, .eu, shamegamethebook.com, and projecttwistit.com, which is the one about the uh, writing of young folks in poverty uh, uh, and the work that's done there that, that uh, Mary O'Hara was one of the co-founders of. For this conversation and many others and articles and so on, go to terrencemcnally.net. T E R R E N C E M C N A L L Y dot net or a world that just might work dot com. That's a world that just might work all one word dot com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on what we're going to talk about, and usually eight or ten articles to flesh out the conversation, uh, you can sign up at my site or you can email me at T E McNally at Mac dot com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and most major podcast sites. You can find years of those podcasts at my site or on the podcast sites. Michael Lewis, Jeremy Scahill, Naomi Klein, Robert Reich, Van Jones, Connie Rice, etc. You can follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. And your Twitter handle, Mary? It's quite simple. It's Mary O'Hara 1. Mary O'Hara 1. And uh, finally, thanks to G. Lee and Mark Maxwell in production. George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. Mary O'Hara, thank you, and keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Terence. It was an absolute pleasure. If you want 24-7 access to everything progressive on the mobile internet, download the Progressive Voices app at ProgressiveVoices.com. The PV app is a one-stop shop that aggregates everything progressive. News, blogs, audio, video, opinion, then thoughtfully curates, prioritizes, and presents the progressive content. 
The purpose is to create a progressive media universe, an alternative to the one controlled by cable operators, radio station owners, and newspaper publishers. That's the PV app at ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.